we're going to open up the Word and explore something that's quite important um, for us in the life of the church, as well as in our individual lives. It's quite an important subject. This is quite an important teaching, and we're going to be approaching it more as a teaching Bible study format than a preaching format. But if you have your Bible, would you turn with me to Romans chapter 12, and we're going to read from verse 9. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Without a doubt, the toughest calling placed on us as Christians isn't the greatest or the great commission to evangelize the world, but is in fact the commission that is echoed within these verses. What is read as commands in their wording is an actual fact, a commission from God. And it's one that is repeated in sentiment throughout the Scripture from the Old Testament all the way through to the New, and it is that commission to love one another. The call to love one another is the underlying theme of this passage. We see it in the verses that we've read with phrases like be devoted to one another or honor one another or live in harmony with one another, live at peace with everyone. At the basis and the root of each of these calls is the echo of the same command and commission, love one another. Now, Jesus himself called us to this, didn't he? Many times throughout his ministry, the most famous, of course, being within the parable of the, great, the Good Samaritan, where he told us to love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. The same is heard through that one statement of Jesus that makes all of us wince, regardless of how spiritual and devout we are, and that is that call that this is how they will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. And all of us would admit that the instruction that Jesus gives and exhorts us to is one of the hardest things to do. You would think that it would be the opposite though, wouldn't you? We're all washed in the blood of the Lamb. We've all had our sins forgiven. We're all striving to walk holy before God. We're all battling with our sinful nature. We all have the same goal and the same purpose. We desire to see his kingdom come and his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And you would think then with a shared mission and with shared core values that are called out to us by Jesus and universally accepted by believers all over the world, you would think then that living in an expression of love and unity would be easy. But it isn't. And perhaps the reason for that is because we do all live in an experience of redemption, but we also all live with a sinful nature, a sinful nature that is constantly being redeemed the more we walk in relationship with Him. 
And the sinful nature and our redeemed nature, they are polar opposites, and they exist in this, in a sense, constant conflict. It's almost like a tug of war that wrestles within each of us, and there are moments of victory in that, but there are also moments of weakness in that, and moments of weakness within the tug of war can often outwork themselves in our speech, in our behavior, in our attitudes, and in our conduct. And whilst we can all agree with that and nod and agree that the battle of the natures is a universal struggle that we'll all face and one that we will continue to face as long as there is breath in our bodies, there has to be then a massive truth that we have to acknowledge head on and call out that in the moments when we're perhaps not doing so well and living on the right side of the struggle, we can at times offend one another. Now, Proverbs is a book that speaks on a vast variety of subjects, dropping in little nuggets of wisdom that when unpacked are so profoundly insightful. But in particular, the book of Proverbs has quite a lot to say about offenses. Proverbs 17 and verse 9 says this, whoever covers an offense promotes love, but whoever repeats a matter separates close friends. Here, the wisdom writer reveals to us the power that there is in offense. Offenses have the power to bring division, to bring splits, to bring separation, to cause disunity. And without a doubt, many splits and schisms and divisions exist within the body of Christ today. And the main reason for that actually isn't over a difference of doctrine. The main reason is over the offense that's been caused by the difference. In fact, the main reason is offended people, mostly. There is power in offense. There is power in harboring offense because it impacts the spiritual culture of the soul. And this is something we need to grasp, we need to get to grips with as the people of God. And so we begin this morning by defining offense. And an important thing that we have to call out when it comes to this subject is that there is a difference between sin and offense. There is a difference between someone sinning against us and someone offending us. They are not the same, but in church we treat them as though they are. And one example of this is found in Ezekiel 33 in verse 10 when the prophet is communicating to the people of Israel and God says this, Son of man, say to the Israelites, this is what you're saying. Our offenses and sins weigh us down and we're wasting away because of them. In this text, offenses and sins are listed as two separate entities, two distinct things, but yet both carry an impact, both put a weight on the soul of the people, both impact the culture of the soul. And as we've already said, sinning against someone is quite different to offending someone. And what highlights the difference is where the responsibility lies, where the Bible calls out that the responsibility lies. When someone sins against us, the responsibility for that action lies with the other person. And we're actually given steps to handle that in Matthew 18. Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, the steps here are pretty clear. And Jesus begins by telling us that these steps are to be used if someone sins against you. So let's park on that just for a moment. 
And in the nicest way, can we recognize together that the text doesn't say, if someone rubs you up the wrong way, if you dislike someone, if someone's actions have really peed you off today, if you disagree with someone, if you look at them and just the way that they breathe flipping annoys you, go to them and point out that they're ultimate heathens. That's not what the passage is saying, right? The scripture is clear. What we're talking about is actions that sit within the arena of sin, not the arena of offense. It's not if you've been offended, if you've been grieved, or if your nose is out of joint. The instructions are, if sin has taken place, here are the steps that you are to, to, are to follow to handle it. And we have to call them out in church because we miss this so many times. Step one, go to the person and show them their fault. What's called out here is that the fault lies with the other person. It is their issue. The responsibility for action, their actions is theirs. Step two, if they don't listen take others with you. It's interesting, and how often do we miss this, that the point that we're supposed to involve other people, brethren, the point that we're supposed to bring the knowledge of the issue to the knowledge of other people, brothers and sisters, is only when we have spoken to the person that has sinned against us, first of all, and it's only if they have not listened and acknowledged the issue. We tend to have a habit in church circles that skipping over that step and informing the wider elect, just for the purpose of prayer, obviously. <laughs> but the point in step two is that the responsibility for what has taken place doesn't lie with the wider informed group, but it still lies with the other person, who has the responsibility to hear and to take it on board, particularly when others are brought along and saying, it's not just this individual that thinks something wrong's happened, actually we need to call out that what's taken place isn't great. Step three, then, is if they still refuse to listen, take it to the church. In the gentlest of ways, can we highlight that the point that the church and the church leadership gets involved is only one steps one and two have been completed. And even in this third and final step, the responsibility for the sin still lies with the other individual who, if not willing to repent, even after church leadership and pastoral counsel have been brought in, should be removed from the church. Now, each step in this process, the responsibility is highlighted as lying with the person that has sinned, not the one that has sinned against. But when it comes to offense, it is completely different. When someone's actions, behavior, reactions, attitudes, conduct, even when an event or circumstance offends you, the responsibility lies with you. Proverbs makes that clear. We have a choice to make. We can cover it over, that is choose not to dwell on it, choose not to let it alter the culture of our souls. We can choose not to fester on it and focus on it. Instead, make the decision to direct our focus and attention towards the place of love and living in an expression of love. Or we can choose to repeat it. That is to repeat it in a literal sense, to tell everyone about it. Or to repeat it in the metaphorical sense, which is to just play that tape over and over in our minds and in our souls. And whatever way we repeat it, and rarely is there one without the other, whatever way we repeat it, it causes problems. It causes division. The point of the proverb, though, is that in response to offense, we have a choice. And if we have a choice, then the responsibility of how that offense outworks itself and the impact that we allow it to have on us 
Well, that responsibility lies with us because it's our choice. To say I have been offended is to say and to acknowledge that the responsibility for the outworking of that lies with me. To say you have sinned against me is to say that the responsibility for that lies with you. The difference is obvious in the language, isn't it, from where the focus is. But it actually highlights where responsibility and ownership lies. Now, don't get me wrong. What I'm not saying here is that someone causing offense shouldn't be held accountable. They should. And in most cases, if you think about it, when we discover that we've offended someone, the natural default response to that, unless we're profoundly arrogant, the natural response to that is to apologize for causing that offense. Even if we don't think that we were wrong in what we did, if we've offended someone, then the normal thing is to apologize for that and to seek not to do that again. But the point is that we have control over the level of impact that we permit offenses to make in our lives. In most cases, when offense takes place, it tends to revolve around an injury to our pride. When someone offends us, when a situation or circumstance offends us, it's normally the result of us being made to feel vulnerable uncomfortable, perhaps a little bit out of control. Now, sometimes those feelings are due to being on the receiving end of sin or injustice, but sometimes, if we're honest, it's actually down to our pride being dented. When we face offense, we have a choice to make, and we have to think to ourselves, am I repeating this offense in my mind or in my conversation? and with other people, because in actual fact, in doing so, I'm allowing myself to feel in a measure of control again, to feel less vulnerable, to feel uncomfortable, less uncomfortable, and particularly when other people are telling us that what we've been on the receiving end is wrong, that we're right to feel the way that we're right, and that this shouldn't have taken place. Am I replaying this in my mind to make myself feel like the bigger, better person? If that is the reason why we're doing this, then the truth is all we're doing is feeding our pride, which is not a healthy emotion to feed because it has an insatiable appetite. Now, don't get me wrong, there are times when people wrong us, and that wrong causes us hurt, and we have steps that we have to deal with in Matthew 18, or that we have to use to deal with that. However, it's possible to cause offense without doing any wrong, and that's important for us to focus on. It's possible to be offended without being wronged, and you think, really, is that possible? But it is, and Scripture highlights that. Let's look at some examples real quick. Matthew 13, verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary, and aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. Specifically, the text says that the people took offense at Jesus. Jesus' teaching, his ministry caused them offense and caused them to feel offended. Now, did Jesus do anything wrong? Absolutely not. In fact, the people describe his behavior and function with positive terms. He's speaking wisdom, they say. He's functioning with miraculous powers. So what's the issue here? The issue is that he's one of them. He's one of their own. 
They have an issue learning from one of their own people their problem, the root of their offense is their own pride. Jesus hasn't done anything wrong, but their pride has been injured and they take offense. Look at Matthew 15 from verse 1. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father and mother with it. Makes sense, right? Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Then the Pharisees came to him and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? Jesus has a somewhat heated exchange with the Pharisees that result in the disciples coming to Jesus and telling them, telling him, they'd offended the religious leaders. Now, in that conversation that Jesus had with the Pharisees, he had a somewhat direct, he did kind of go for the jugular and, and confront and challenge their thought processes and practices. He had a very direct conversation, but he was not wrong in what he said. He wasn't sinning against them with his challenge. The issue was that they were made to feel uncomfortable. The issue was that they were made to feel a little bit vulnerable. The issue was that the public nature of what was done meant that their religious pride was challenged, and as a result, they took offense. While offense occurred, wrong did not. Jesus didn't wrong the people that he offended. Third and final example is in actual fact an important one in John chapter 6. It says, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. The word that's used there for turn back is took offense. Jesus has delivered some really serious teaching regarding the bread of life and the way to be in union with him. It was hard teaching, it was heavy teaching, and he used metaphorical language that was difficult to get the head around. His teaching brought challenge, it contradicted existing religious culture, and the result of that was that the disciples took offense. Now, in the other occasions that we've cited so far, the other examples, it's easy for us to look on at those offenses taking place and feel detached from those examples. Those people in his hometown who couldn't see Jesus for who he was like we see him for who he, who he is. Or those religious leaders with their religious spirits and their godless rituals that can't recognize the life of God that we now live in. It's easy for us to look on on those occasions and, and when people have taken offense and feel a wee bit justified and been disappointed that they became offended because they're not like us. They weren't believers like us. They, they don't see him and understand him the way that we do. But in this example, that's completely different. 
The people taking offense are his own disciples. They aren't just members of a crowd. They aren't gathered observers looking on for the, the sight of a miracle. These are people who are identified not as generic crowd fillers, but of those that have made some form of commitment and some form of decision to Jesus that they would therefore be regarded as his disciples. They are followers of him. And they've been around him and they've watched miracles and they've listened to teaching and yet they hear something that on this occasion they take offense over. Now, without a doubt, their offense would have been fueled by the fact that in the verses round about this, we're told that some of the Jews that were in that synagogue when the teaching was taking place were becoming disgruntled and they were beginning to voice their disgruntlement and they were beginning to grumble. And the disciples are matching that with what's going on in the atmosphere of the room, the, the discomfort that they feel in the culture of their own soul with what they're hearing and they take offense. And how often can it be the case that as God begins to move and he begins to do something different and we begin to feel a wee bit uncomfortable and then perhaps as others round about us begin to grumble and moan about it, that it begins to fuel that. And before long, we find that actually we feel justified in the offense that we're taking. The disciples here, they become offended. Now, Jesus hasn't done anything wrong. He's just taught the truth of the kingdom. But yet, even though no wrong has taken place, offense still occurs. It's important for us in the moments that we feel offended to pause and assess, has wrong taken place? Has sin taken place? Because if it has, there's steps to deal with that, Matthew 18. But if there's no wrong taking place, then we need to ask ourselves, are we feeling what we're feeling because our pride has been dented and our pride has been injured? Are we feeling vulnerable? Are we feeling uncomfortable? Do we feel a little bit out of control? Is this actually all about our pride? Now, it's not wrong to take offense at something. In fact, being offended isn't incorrect. It's what we do with the offense that is where the issue is. And that's what we look at for the remainder of this moment that we have together. Because Scripture presents that offense and the choice to live in offense has profound spiritual consequences. Let's throw some Greek at this and set a bit of a foundation. The Greek word for offense is the word skandalizo. And it's from the root of that word that we get the term scandal. In fact, the root of the word skandalizo is the word scandalon, which means to ensnare and trap. Offenses when left unchecked, ensnare us. They trap us. They limit us and limit our experience of life. And we see that from the very definition of the term scandalizo. Scandalizo means to put a stumbling block or impediment in the way upon which someone may trip and fall. It means to entice to sin, to cause a person to distrust, to cause to fall away, to disprove of or cause displeasure, to judge unfavorably to hinder from acknowledging authority, to make indignant. Now, this is a very full definition of the term scandalizo, and it presents the very full consequences of living in offense. We springboard from that, and we begin to look at some scriptural examples that call out the spiritual power that there is in living in offense and allowing them to take root in our souls. If you've got your Bible, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 13 and verse 18. We're going to largely be in Matthew, Matthew 13 and 18. Jesus says, listen to what the parable of the sower means. 
The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Jesus is telling the parable of the sower here, and he likens the seed in the parable to the word of God. He describes to us the different heart conditions that the word is released into. He uses metaphorical language and analogy to portray the different conditions of the human heart. And in his parable, seed is sown on the path, it's sown on rocky ground, it's sown amongst thorns, and it's sown in good soil, four different conditions. Now, having delivered his object lesson, as it were, Jesus steers right into the interpretation part of that, and he tells them what the parable is all about. The verses that we've read describe the meaning of the seed fallen on rocky ground, and the point that Jesus is making when he explains the meaning behind the seed sown on the rocky soil is ultimately the same as the seed that's sown on the path and amongst the thorns. It describes heart conditions that do not produce fruit. It says of the person whose heart is like the rocky ground that they receive the word, but it doesn't bear fruit. And for that reason, when trouble or persecution comes because of the word that's planted, they quickly fall away. Now, the phrase fall away is the Greek word skandalizo, which means offense. And the King James translation translates it directly that way, that when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, the individual is offended. Now, whatever way you read this, whether it's the lack of grounding in the word and the absence of fruitfulness that leads to offense, or whether it is that offense has taken place and therefore the word can't take root and it can't produce fruit, whatever way you interpret it, the truth is this, offense and fruitlessness are linked. Whether you view the offense as the result of the word not going deep in a life, or whether you decide that the offense has stopped the word going deep and taking shape, the truth is this, offense and fruitfulness do not coexist, according to Jesus, in these words. So we have to guard our heart against offense because it impacts our fruitfulness and impacts our ability to be shaped by the word. Proverbs 18 and verse 19 says this, a brother offended is more unyielded than a strong city and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. The passage translation puts it brilliantly. It's easy, easier to conquer a strong city than to win back a friend whom you've offended. Their walls go up, making it nearly impossible to win them back. In a generic sense, what this teaches us is that offenses change the culture of the soul. They produce a hardness to the heart. They erect walls. They construct barriers, making the soul less malleable to the presence of God and the Word of God and less available to interaction and relationship with other people. To revisit offense in the soul impacts the way that we interact with other people. It shapes our ability to love and to be loved. It puts up walls around us that were never intended to be present. But those walls don't just have an outworking in our, in our relationships on the natural plane. They also impact our relationships in the spiritual plane, our relationships with the Word, with His presence, our ability to interact with His heart, our sensitivity to be moved and to be influenced by the Holy Spirit. In short, offenses are a blockade to fruitfulness and fullness. They are limiters that stop us pressing into the fullness of life that God intended for us. To be fruitful in relationships, as spouses, as parents, as family members, as friends, even just as good citizens, we need to take the walls down. We need to press pause on the tape of offenses that is playing over and over in our souls and choose to release those offenses into the heart of God. 
The reality check that comes with that is that our behavior, our conduct, our speech and attitudes must rise and bring offense to the standards of God, but yet not once does he ever bring the walls up and deny admittance to his heart. He visits us with love over and over and over again. And if we're praying to live with his heart and reflect his heart, then we have to realize that the only way that we can be fruitful in that is to release the offenses that our hearts carries and ask him to bring the walls down and dismantle the bars. Proverbs 19, verse 11, again in the Passion Translation says this, an understanding person demonstrates patience, for mercy means holding your tongue. When you're insulted, be quick to forgive and forget it, for you are virtuous when you overlook an offense. Some translations say it is to your glory to overlook an offense. Now, glory tends in Scripture only to be attached to God. So, in some senses, then, the Scripture is calling out that we function like God when we overlook an offense and choose to visit it with mercy as opposed to revisit it with anger. But equally, what the Passion Version teaches us is that there is virtue in forgiving and forgetting. Now, that's not to be soft and just let people off the hook when they've done wrong. But in the economy of God, beauty is attached to releasing offenses and those that have offended us. Those actions of releasing offenses and offenders are actions that God views as valuable, as beautiful, as pure, as holy. We need to release our offenses because they are blockades to fruitfulness and fullness. The second thing, and don't worry, we've only got three, the second thing that we see is that offenses hinder the miraculous and the supernatural. Slip again to Matthew 13 and verse 53. It says, when Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom, these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers jo James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where this, did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Two big things come out of this that are a hard pill to swallow. The hard attitude of the people is presented to us in two ways. One, they took offense. Two, they had lack of faith. The behavior of the people is taken to an unseen level. The scripture writer lets us see what's going on in their hearts. These people are amazed. They are wowed by wisdom. They are stunned by miraculous powers. But then they turn a corner very quickly. And begin to think, we know this guy's family. We knew him from when he was in nappies. His parents are from our neck of the woods. Who does this guy think he is to come to us and teach us? It takes a village to raise a child and we were his village. And here he is teaching us to suck eggs. I don't think so. And they took offense. But here's the big one. Offenses obstruct our view and vision of Jesus. It stops us seeing him properly. These people couldn't see him for who he was. They were so offended 
that he would seek to come and teach and to minister amongst them, that actually their offense prevented them from seeing him for who he truly was. This is down to the walls going up again. It's all about how those bars get constructed around the heart. When the heart hardens towards other people and towards other situations, it can limit the ability of the heart to see fully and it can fuzz our vision of God, particularly when we begin to view ourselves as justified for being offended. And in most cases, we actually are. It's not necessarily wrong, as we've already said, to feel that offense has taken place. It's not wrong to recognize that we've been offended by someone's actions or or the circumstances that takes place. Where wrong lies is holding on to that offense, is shaping the culture of the heart around that offense, is allowing the offense to dictate our behavior and our conducts and our attitudes. Scripture says glory and virtue, beauty and godliness is found in forgiving and forgetting. It's found in releasing and moving forward with a desire to keep the heart malleable. Because remember, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. So if releasing offense is what God views as beautiful and holy and pure, then harboring offense impacts that beauty and purity. And if only the pure in heart see God, then harboring that offense prevents us from seeing God properly. The other thing that Matthew 13 throws up is that Matthew in his telling of the moment links the people being offended to a lack of faith. The direct consequence of that is that Jesus didn't perform any miracles amongst them. We've already said that offenses harbored influence the culture of the soul and that's seen in the fact that the Word of God links the presence of offense in the people's hearts to a lack of faith. Their offense dented their ability to see Jesus properly and it impacted the potential of them seeing Jesus at work in their everyday environment. Offenses harbored, they damage the culture of the soul. They become a blockage to seeing the culture of heaven outworked through the culture of our souls. Offenses block the miraculous and the supernatural. And as we say that, we have to call out, offenses don't stop Jesus being miraculous. Nothing can. His miraculous function And his supernatural abilities are not determined by who we are. They are determined by who he is. But our ability to connect with what he is doing and to see him outworking in our everyday lives is influenced by the presence of offense. When we begin to release the offenses that we carry into the heart of God, we begin to see the heart of God invade our everyday. When we begin to release offenses, God calls it glory. And he begins to release and manifest his glory in those moments through our souls. Offenses are a barrier to the miraculous and to the supernatural. And the third and final point that we pull out is that offenses damage our testimony. Look at Matthew 26 and verse 31. Then Jesus said to the disciples, this very night you will all fall away on account of me For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Just moments before Jesus' prayer session in the Garden of Gethsemane and his subsequent arrest, Jesus predicts the betrayal of Peter and the abandonment of his disciples. And again, the English translation doesn't do it justice. The phrase for fall away, even if all fall away, is the word scandalizo, which means offense. Again, the King James Version translates it directly. 
Peter answered, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet I will never be offended. Jesus announces that offense is going to visit their hearts. And bold Peter announces that he will never be offended. And I think what Jesus is teaching us here is quite important, and Peter doesn't quite get it. He says that he will never be offended because of Jesus. A statement that in just a few verses' time we would discover to be untrue as he denies him three times. And it's interesting that Jesus says they'll all be offended and he tells them the reason why and he quotes, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. The striking of the shepherd is what's going to cause offense and we don't have time to unpack this fully, but the disciples are about to navigate through the darkest season of their soul. As they watch Jesus being arrested, tortured and murdered, they're going to experience and witness what we could only describe as traumatic. And Jesus has spelled it out to them over and over what it is that's going to happen, but yet even although he has, as the events unfold, they're still caught off guard and they're still traumatized by what takes place. They had plans to take the world for Jesus. In fact, they had plans to take the world with Jesus. Their vision and plan, the sequence of events as they thought they would be, were now interrupted and they had no choice but to navigate through pain and hurt and grief and trauma. The sequence of events, Jesus predicted, would cause offense in their souls. Did you know, as I read this, I was so challenged because I realized something quite important. There have been times that my soul has been offended simply by the journey that it's had to make. When things happen that are just part of life that we have no control over, that make us feel uncomfortable and vulnerable and out of control. It's not necessarily that sin has happened. It's just that life has happened. Things happen to us. Events unfold. Difficulty occurs. And we have no choice but to navigate through it. And the truth is that the circumstances of life can cause us offense. They can cause the walls to go up. Hardness to arise because of what we've been through and what we've had to experience. And if we pause and look at it, the truth is this, your soul may well be carrying offense and it's not necessarily because of what someone has said or because of what someone has done, but it's because of what life has done. An injustice, a trauma, a difficulty, a stressful experience, a hardship, an injustice, a storm, a trial, a tribulation coming at you from out of nowhere. And when you come out the other side of that, you're grateful that it's passed and maybe even you can see the hand of God bringing you through it. But your soul is offended because of what you've been through. Your soul still carries the effects of that and the culture of the soul becomes impacted by it. We carry offense with us. And that offense has to be released into the heart of God. In the case of Jesus disciples, and in the case of Peter in particular, that offense not being released that damaged his testimony. We pick up in verse 69, that Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him, you also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. He denied it, calling down curses and he swore to them, I do not 
know the man. It's a situation that he is navigating through, gets spoken of. Jesus, uh, Peter gets offended. And we can see the offense growing as he moves from denying it in an attempt to protect himself to him being offended at the very mention of his association with Jesus so much that he's calling down curses upon himself. His testimony becomes impacted by the offense he's carrying in his soul. And that offense comes out of a sense of trauma and grief, even being let down by this man, let down by the man who raised the dead and cast out demons but couldn't even help himself and stop himself being arrested. Let down by the man who, when he was being arrested, Peter sought to try and help him out with the ear-chopping-off maneuver and, and Jesus kind of stuck it back on again. Peter is offended, as Jesus says he would be. And the offense in his soul damages his testimony and his witness and his ability to function as a disciple. We often can be offended by the circumstances of life that we have to go through. We can be offended by the way that God does or doesn't function within those moments, especially if he doesn't do what we think he should do or what we have asked him to do. And sure, we can look back and we can see perhaps maybe if we look hard enough, we can see how he worked within that for our good and according to his plan and his purpose. But as long as we still carry offense in our soul from what we've been through, our testimony will never be complete. Our story of what God did in that moment can never be fully expressed because we're still carrying hurt and pain from that. We're still carrying hurt and pain from what we've journeyed through. So the testimony of what God had done in that cannot have its conclusion written yet. But when we release the offense from those moments, it brings the story of God from that season of life into its fullest expression. Check your soul. It may be that without realizing it, you've carried offense, not from what someone has said or done, but actually from the very circumstances you've navigated through. It's time to release those offenses into the heart of God and find the fullness of what he has for you. Don't carry offenses any longer because freedom can never truly be yours for as long as you do. We have to learn to deal with offenses. Living in offenses to live with the walls of the heart right up. It's to allow the heart to remain with hardness. It impacts so many areas of our life and our spirituality. And the way to handle offenses and the way to handle feeling offended by people is to make the choice that rather than repeating the offense, rather than playing the videotape of that offensive moment or that offensive person, rather than allowing the feelings and emotions to play on repeat in our souls and our minds, instead, we make the decision to release them. And that's not an instantaneous thing and it's not an instantaneous result. The choice to release is one that we have to make and reaffirm on a regular, if not daily basis. It is a conscious decision that we have to make, but it is a decision that when we make it, God breathes upon it and adds his grace and his supernatural ability to it. We choose to release and each day as we do, God releases something of his beauty and his glory and his grace within us. He shapes his heart within us. This is the key to fruitfulness in all aspects of life. It's what unlocks the supernatural and the manifest presence of God within our lives. And this choice is one that secures our testimony and strengthens the story of God in our lives. 
This is what Romans calls us to. Bless those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Don't take revenge. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. These are powerful words that contain a powerful truth, not just in relation to offenses, but really to all aspects of life. And as we bring this into land, we call this out real quick. We're told when our enemies come against us and curse us, when we're challenged and opposed, we could say when we find ourselves in offensive situations, here's what we have to do. We have to bless and not curse. We're not to act as the sinful nature would have us act, which is to measure back what has been measured up to us. We've not to respond to curse with curse and hate with hate and anger with anger and injustice with vengeance, but instead we are to operate in the opposite spirit to what we're on the receiving end of. The part of Romans that calls us to feed our enemy and clothe them and give them a drink if they're thirsty, the call to operate in the opposite spirit of what we're on the receiving end of is a quote from elsewhere in Scripture, and you guessed it, it's a quote from Proverbs. And Proverbs 25 tells us that if we act in the opposite spirit, the Lord will reward you. Operating in the opposite spirit unlocks the reward of God. And the Hebrew word for reward is the word shalam, which means to make safe in mind, body, and in a state to be completed. In the face of offense, when we choose not to harbor and revisit offenses, but release them into the heart of God, when we begin to operate in the opposite spirit of what we've been on the receiving end of, God begins to release peace and security into the very culture of our souls. He begins to visit our bodies. He begins to manifest within our estate, which means he steps into our world and he begins to make us complete. He begins to release fullness to every aspect of who we are. When we release offense and operate in the opposite spirit, we unlock the Lord's reward. What is that reward? It's glory. It's heaven. Heaven is our reward. Jesus operated in the opposite spirit. When they came to arrest him and take him by force and Peter chopped off the guy's ear, he responded in the opposite spirit by bringing healing and going in peace. Standing before Pilate and Herod and the religious leaders, he remained silent in the face of accusations. Hanging from the cross, as everyone shouted the most obscene obscenities at him, call him all sorts of things, he responded by saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He could have been offended by what he was on the receiving end of, what his soul had journeyed through and what he had to experience. But he chose to release that offense. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And he operated in the opposite spirit. And the result was that he unlocked the Lord's reward over every man, woman, boy, and girl that would have faith and trust in him. Through his death, through his resurrection, heaven's gates swung open. The fullness of God began to visit bodies, souls, and spirits of every believer. The fullness of life was unleashed upon planet earth. So when we begin to follow that example and operate in the opposite spirit, releasing offense, we function as Jesus did and we bring heaven to the earth. When someone or something offends us, the responsibility for that offense and its consequence is ours. 
We can choose to live in it and repeat it and let it impact the very culture of our souls. Or we can confess the heart and offense to God, release it in order to release ourselves from its grip and begin to operate in the opposite spirit and see heaven come down. Church, you've been so patient as we've navigated through this. But it's important that we unpack this as fully as we possibly can. Because God calls us, it's time to release your soul from offense and release it into the reward of God. It's time to let go. Press pause on the tape that is playing over and over in your head and choose to step out in the opposite spirit and watch as God visits our body and our soul and our whole various state with his glory, with his beauty, and release us into fullness. Church, we need to let go of offenses and release our soul from their grip.